Hello. That's the sound of the cat scratching the scratching post. So I don't know if this is going to work at all. Um, but I have this idea. I have this project in mind. I've been feeling particularly bad about my reading stack recently. This is a theme of this show, Alice's reading stack. She can never read everything. But lately I've just been feeling like not only will I never be able to read everything, but like I don't read. <laughs> I just don't I just don't sit down and read um, as much as I want to or sometimes at all, sometimes for like weeks. Um, and it feels really bad. It feels really bad. I want to, I want to try to change that. And I feel like the only, the only thing that I seem to respond to is some kind of structured project around, um, a goal like that. I'm in a position at the moment where, like, I'm really lucky. People are sending me their books. People are sending me their own books. Publishers are sending me books. And I also, like one of my favorite things to do in the world is to go out, hang out in a bookshop, preferably secondhand bookshop, and find something and bring it home. But there's always this like aspirational moment where I'm like, yes, and then I will read this book and then I will know what is inside it. And then it just sits there. And this is true of stuff that I buy that I actually really want to read and stuff that I buy because I feel like I should read it. So I ordered this book a couple of, not a couple, like six months ago, Lynn Herginian's My Life. And this book kind of falls between those two categories. I know that Herginian is very, very important to a number of poets who I really admire. I know Jess Wilkinson's work is very much informed by Herginian. I know that she's important to Bonnie Cassidy and and probably many, many others, but I can't tell you who those people would be right now. Um, I've never read her. I've never really read any language poetry. We did a tiny bit of work on one Ron Silliman poem in um, my modern and contemporary American poetry course back in 2012. I really loved it. I really loved the poem that we looked at. I was like immediately convinced by it, loved the strategy, no problem with it. Then I went and bought The Alphabet, which is Ron Silliman's huge, huge tome. And it just sat there on my shelf for probably a decade and then we moved house and I uh, I think I donated it to something or I sold it at our garage sale so like when I think about that it's not on the one hand I'm like kind of fuck you Ron Silliman because that book was too long but also why didn't I ever just pick it up and like look inside it because I liked the work when we looked at it in the course. Anyway, I'm getting completely off track. What I want to try to do here is to make reading visible 
Um, this is an idea that I think is talked about in academic circles from a number of different angles. What I mean when I say it is I want to try to communicate to you what it is like to do the reading. I've got this article here that the very, very wonderful teacher Elise Dowden shared with us when we did our Poetics of Rebellion course. Um, when was that? Like uh, late last year. And to start off the course, because there was heaps of reading in the course, but to start it off, she got us to look at this article called Ground Provisions. This is an article by Tanika Seely Thompson and Stefano Hani. They're from Singapore University, and they run this thing called Ground Provisions, which they call a reading camp. It's like a reading retreat. Students go to a particular place, and they sit, and they read together, and they read to each other, and um, they just talk about the work of reading in this way that was so freeing to me. I want to read this little bit. So they say, in... In students' work in the classroom, reading is absent or hidden. It has been outsourced to the privacy of their homes, studies, or more typically bus seats and lunch breaks. The classroom is a reading-free zone. Indeed, anyone caught reading is thought somehow not to have done his or her work. Students are supposed to read at home alone. Even study groups are supposed to discuss assignments, not spend time in each other's company reading much less reading to each other. It's almost as if reading is something about which we are embarrassed. And then further down they say, in the classroom, everyone is supposed to have done the reading. In this way, each person can be measured in discussion or on an exam to see how much she or he absorbed the reading as an individual. To have done the reading is to have completed the work required outside the classroom, the piecemeal work, the outsourced work. The teacher, already the subject supposed to know, is characterized by having done all the reading. So that really blew my mind because I, it's not a sexy or um, flattering aspect of my personality, but I really do put people who have done a lot of reading on a pedestal. And I feel like it's a race and a competition and that it is like some kind of judgment, indictment, measure of me, um, whether I've read enough. Nobody's ever told me how much is enough. <laughs> and uh, like, I don't think I would ever be satisfied. I don't think there's such a thing as, as, as enough. Um, this is the total opposite to the way I feel about movies where I feel, you know, I used to look at those books like a, a thousand and one movies to see before you die. And I was like, oh, I, I should probably buy one of those and work through it. And eventually I sort of realized like, nah, <laughs> I don't want to do it that way. I just want to watch the movies that I like and make my own patchwork quilt of like, this is my taste. These are my interests. Um... I like queer film, I like documentary, I like movies where people sit in a room and talk about their feelings. I've seen a lot of those kind of films 
and and that's my jam you know I don't know why it's different with reading maybe I take the the film canon less seriously there is also the Australian angle to this as well um, I was meant to record for like five minutes here, but I think I've gone on for, yeah, nearly 10 minutes. Okay, so as an Australian um, writer, reader, person, I feel like I need to know my own canon. Like if we if we believe in that word, like we there's, there's a conversation to be had there. Um, I need to know my own history, put it that way. I need to know the English literary canon. I need to know that poetic history and the American one. Now that's leaving out aside like the Pacific history or like the Asian canon. I can't just stop at my own at Australian writers. So... I'd like I don't have that luxury is what I'm saying so I feel like if you're if you're British you can just read your British stuff and then you're like sweet done or if you're American you kind of just focus on the Americans like we don't have that luxury and so maybe that's another reason I feel behind maybe that's another reason I feel pressure as I say I know that this isn't I know it's not reasonable I know it's not cool um, I know that it's like it it sucks that I feel this way (laughs) I hate it but I've felt this way for a very long time it doesn't seem to be shifting I wonder if doing this um, could change it so what I want to try to do is I've got my copy of my life I brought it home with me from the office today for the first time after six months of it sitting next to my computer I opened it and I looked at what I had to read. It's a hundred pages. Each poem is about a page and a half. They're prose poems, so they go, you know, all the way to the edge. It's going to be, they're pretty dense. I have no idea how long it's going to take me to do it. But now that I've started this and I've started to tell you about it, the plan is to just try to read some amount each day and then to come back here every now and again and report on the progress and to tell you what it's like to read this book which has always felt like truly insurmountable but also like one I really have want to have read I want to read it and I want to have read it <laughs> if that makes sense I kind of feel like with Silliman's alphabet it's just like nah sorry mate like it's it's too it's too fucking much like I just can't read a thousand pages of you like who's read that oh my lunch is ready who's read that (laughs) man I'm just so angry I gotta stop okay that's that's it I'm gonna I need to eat something clearly okay this is the first part of the first poem in my life by Lynn Herginian first published in 1980 by Wesleyan University Press. A pause arose, something on paper. A moment yellow, just as four years later, 
and my father returned home from the war, the moment of greeting him as he stood at the bottom of the stairs, younger, thinner than when he had left, was purple, though moments are no longer so coloured. Somewhere in the background, rooms share a pattern of small roses. Pretty is as pretty does. In certain families, the means of necessity is at one with the sentiment of pre-necessity. The better things were gathered in a pen. The windows were narrowed by white gauze curtains, which were never loosened. Here I refer to irrelevance, that rigidity which never intrudes. Hence, repetitions free from all ambition. It is very beautiful. You can definitely, you can see things, you can feel things. There is an image building up, but it's tough going. Okay, so this is going pretty badly. I recorded that last entry there on Monday the 15th of May. It is now Monday the 26th of June. I read... I think I've read like uh, eight or nine pages of the book, My Life by Lynn Hedginian. Um... It's not that I haven't been reading stuff. Like, <laughs> hey, I've been reading, okay? I've been reading. Get off my back. Um, no, I've been reading heaps of stuff. I just I just don't want to read that book. And there are many books, many, many books in my house and here in my office where the latest update is that we now have rats. Very exciting. Um, many books that I just, I don't want to read. I have them. I want to want to read them. And yeah, I, I think that that is sort of a ridiculous state to be in. On Matthew's show, Slee Ricketts, over the last couple of weeks, he's had some fantastic interviews with Shane McRae. And it was actually through Shane that I decided, it was through a, an email exchange that we had with Shane after one of my episodes on Slee Ricketts, that I decided that I really did want to read this book by Lynn Herginian because I know that it's a, it's a book that Shane thinks is great. And I thought, yeah, I've always wanted to read that. And you know, I, I trust your judgment. I'll, I'll get myself a copy. I will read that book. And yeah, obviously it's going really terribly. And in these interviews on Slee Ricketts, there's a, a part of it which is actually on The Secret Show, I think, which you can you can subscribe to without paying for for a week. So you can listen to this bit if you want to. It's a really excellent interview, really, really excellent. Um, and, yeah, Matthew's kind of talking to Shane about this difficulty of, of just there's just so much stuff. There's so much stuff to read. And Shane says... There is a lot of it and one has to choose how to relate to it. He says, I'm definitely not keeping up. I do my best. If I spend my time contemplating all the art I'm missing out on, I will miss out on the art I already have access to. 
And that was really good to hear. Um, yeah. I also wrote to Anna a couple of weeks ago and I was, we were talking about this idea of like reading in a circular way, like having a few books on the go, jumping from thing to thing and, um, and, and feeling a bit like that. Maybe that's not the right way to do it. And here's what I said to her. I said, my current reading stack includes Vincent Buckley's last poems, kindly sent to me by a listener, the epistles of Horace, a birthday present, the Hopkins book, and that's just some of them. And that's just the ones at home. Occasionally I get completely over it and I move them to new spots where they induce, where they induce slightly less guilt. Honestly, when I think about it, it's nuts that this is the primary feeling I have looking at books, which are probably the objects I adore most in the world. Yeah, this is... I don't want to keep feeling like this. It sucks. <laughs> it's, and it's unnecessary. Nobody has asked me to feel this way. I don't know if I've spoken before about the guy who works next to me in, in um, the co-working space with the leeks and the rats and the freezing cold. Um, his name's David. I'm whispering. Like, he's not here. I don't need to whisper. He's hardly ever here, which is one of the main reasons I love him. Um, he His workspace is, is like, he's got, he's totally surrounded by books. A lot of them are poetry. 99% of them are by men. Um, a lot of classics classics up to like I think the the most modern thing he has would be some Seamus Heaney um yeah and like I don't know he's definitely younger than I am I reckon he'd be like in his early 30s like dude has not read all these books right like they're just there to um it's a library he's built a library He's a composer, is what I should have said to start with. He's a composer, and I imagine that these books are here to inspire him as he's writing music. And they're not there as, like, a to-do list. They're there as a resource. Um, actually, yeah, I want to also mention this thing, really smart thing that Anna said about mules and donkeys. Let me find this. Uh, yeah, so Anna says, I was flipping through the latest brick journal that came in the mail, and there's an interview with the poet and writer Percival Everett. I've never encountered his work before, but something he said in the interview is really sticking with me in terms of how we think about work and productivity, and the importance of discerning what we are obedient to. Among his many occupations, he's trained horses and mules and donkeys, and in responding to the interviewer's comment about how difficult it must be to train mules, given that they're famously stubborn, he had this to say. You can do anything with a mule that you can do with a horse, except a race, because mules apparently find this a very strange idea. The stubbornness of donkeys and mules are a function of intelligence. They won't get themselves hurt. You can ride a horse until it has a heart attack and dies. If a mule feels stressed, it will stop. 
And you can, I suppose, beat it or whatever you want to do. But the mule recognizes that what you can do to it is not as bad as what will happen otherwise. That gets registered as stubbornness, which is in fact intelligence. Mules are like giant dogs. That's why I loved working with them even more than horses. And donkeys are frightening. They're smarter than mules. Um, yeah. Look, I had a, just a terrible weekend. Um, not because anything bad happened, just because I've been pushing myself like, like a horse <laughs> in this analogy uh, for no reason. No, nobody asked me to. I just, I'm just overworking, I think, basically because I'm addicted to it. Um, and, yeah, it's... Part of, it is about, is, part of it is about avoidance and part of it is about um, a weird sense of urgency and achievement, urgency around achievement that I haven't been able to completely put down yet. And I think that is linked to the reading thing. To want to have read something is such a stupid roundabout like backdoor way to come at something when like I said I've, I've been reading stuff that I like I actually ha did pick up that mythology book that I borrowed from dad and it's really good and I've been finally for the first time in my whole life reading about some of these Greek myths that constantly get referenced in poems and I'm like oh yeah it's kind of these are interesting stories yeah I get it um yeah but mostly Helen Garner, like the best part of my day um, as potentially, I don't know, lame or boring as this might sound, the best part of my day is when I get into bed at like honestly nine or possibly even before, um, put on my little heated blanket and start reading the next essay in True Stories. Um, and I'm nearly finished that book and I'm kind of dreading finishing it. Like it's one of those, I just don't want it to be over. But Lynn Hedginian, I'd like, I don't even think about it. I forget that this project is a thing that I'm trying to do. So, yeah. I think the next thing that I will try to do, and again, I may decide that I do not want to do it, but the next thing I'm going to try to do is just to listen to an interview with her talking about this book. Because while I think I have a vague sense of what she's trying to do, having read all eight pages of the hundred or so that I've got to read, um, I think I just, I really need to understand where she's coming from a bit more before I try to tackle it again. So that's what I'm going to do uh, later. But for now, I'm going to go home and have a cup of tea and try to warm up a bit. Actually, one last, last thing before I go. What I, what I was going to say in this um, entry as well is that I'm going to... Um, my aim with this is to put this out just before I go to New York. And I'm just going to put it out no matter where I'm at with the book, even if I haven't read any more of it. <laughs> it's just going to be like, that was my attempt <laughs> to read my life. Apologies, Lynn. This is the second poem 
starts on page five. It's called, As for We Who Love to Be Astonished. You spill the sugar when you lift the spoon. My father had filled an old apothecary jar with what he called sea glass and bits of old bottles rounded and textured by the sea so abundant on beaches. There is no solitude. It buries itself in veracity. It is as if one splashed by the water, lost by one's tears. My mother had climbed into the garbage can in order to stamp down the accumulated trash, but the can was knocked off balance, and when she fell, she broke her arm. She could only give a little shrug. The family had little money, but plenty of food. At the circus, only the elephants were greater than anything I could have imagined. The egg of Columbus, landscape and grammar. She wanted one where the playground was dirt with grass shaded by a tree from which would hang a rubber tire as a swing. And when she found it, she sent me. It's kind of like the art of the non sequitur, right? Like, the poetry of the non sequitur. Okay, so it is Sunday, the 6th of August. I'm calling it. <laughs> I'm calling it. I, I've done nothing about this book. I have had this GarageBand file sitting on my desktop for, I don't know, I actually don't remember when, it, when I recorded that last entry. Um... I, and the book's just been sitting there next to the couch. I did watch a couple of sections of lectures that Lynn Hedginian had given just about her work in general. I couldn't seem to find anything that she had spoken about, um, where she'd spoken specifically about my life. There were a whole bunch of videos made by the Modpo crew about this poem and I thought yeah 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 cool I'm really I'm gonna get to those and I'll I'll watch them and that'll really help and that'll get me into the book and then I didn't do it and I didn't do it and I didn't do it and now I think I'm just looking at the rest of the month and what I have to do and what I have planned before I go away and I just don't want this hanging over my head <laughs> like I just I just don't care, I think is the thing. Like, I have no reason to care. I I think I just have to be really honest and just say, like, I want to have read this book because I think it's going to make me seem fancy and smart. And I want to like it so I can, you know, stand around and, like, make comments referencing Lynn Hedginian and that's just fucking stupid <laughs> like that's just so dumb it's such a dumb reason to read a book it's such a dumb reason to read a book I was thinking walking over to the office today like I'm so good at eating the frog eating my vegetables like doing the hard thing um doing something difficult that I know is good for me. I've I've been very good at that, but lately, over the last couple of years, I've been thinking a lot about what that quality is and where it comes from and how it's not actually an entirely positive thing. 
and how a lot of things that I at the time thought were achievements trying to think of an example here like I don't know like even something silly like doing a a challenge at the gym or something like that um or reading books that I didn't enjoy and getting all the way through them not really retaining anything but certainly reading every word that was on every page how it just doesn't matter like it just doesn't amount to anything um in the long run because the motivation the the motive is coming from such a hollow place and so over the last couple of years I've become less able to force myself to do that kind of stuff and I think that's good I think that is actually a really excellent thing um because You can go for such a long time in that mode, you know, get it done, write the list, tick it off. Uh, And and not realize that all the things you are doing are just, they're, they're not things you actually care about. So I'm kind of declaring today my life bankruptcy. And maybe even book bankruptcy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know, like, I believe me, I am sick of talking about the books I haven't read, and I'm sure you are sick to death of hearing about it. I was just thinking before, like, why does it bother me so much? And I, I realized that it is because it is connected to denial, like, this pile of books I have next to me, it's a denial of reality. <laughs> it's like there's a there's a lie built into that pile, which is that it, I'm I'm kind of like I'm pretending to myself that one day the way I think and feel about certain of those books is gonna change. And I am going to sit down and read, for example, uh, David Ireland's Time Capsule, which is the collection of poems that he published um, just before he died. And I didn't know he was a poet. And, you know, he's a, he's a phenomenal fiction writer and, like, probably one of, one of our very best. I didn't know he wrote poems. So I bought that book, which was put out by Hardy Grant, and uh i flicked through the first few pages and i was like oh i don't like this actually (laughs) these are all like weird kind of character poems written in character like character studies and they don't really seem to have anything to do with him or his life and i just was like ah maybe not today and i've said maybe not today for i guess two years or maybe even three um i've got an old issue of heat over there which i picked up off the floor from um Oh, that bookshop in Castlemaine, not Castlemaine, Dalesford, uh, Paradise Books. And I was like, well, I can't sit there on the floor. I better take it home with me. I've got Poets of the Month. With, um, I love this little, it's a gorgeous little um, book in a series put out by Angus and Robinson. And 
Yeah, this particular edition in Series 1 of Poets of the Month has James McCauley, John Tranter, Jeffrey Lehman, John Forbes, Thomas Shapcott, and Simon Bronsky. Um, yeah, I I had to bring that home because what an amazing little snapshot of a community of poets uh, and a boys club, you know, that's that's interesting to me. I've got Ann Elder's um, book, <laughs> like, you know, I was uh, very, very lucky to be one of the poets who was shortlisted for the Ann Elder Award. I'd never read a word of Ann Elder's poetry. And then I found um, out in Hawthorne, beautiful secondhand bookshop out there, name of which I'm not going to be able to come up with right now, but I will link to. Um, I found her book, which is called Crazy Woman. <laughs> How could I not buy that, you know? But yeah, it's just sitting there. It's just sitting there. Faze Wiki's book, Ask Me. Don Me Choi's DMZ Colony. And others by people um, who I know and who I really care about and who have given me their books. I just haven't read them. And like, okay, so here's, here's where I, where I want to land with this because I know this is truly exhausting to listen to. <laughs> I think a lot about this idea that my teacher Antonia Pont has put forward in a couple of different ways. That procrastination isn't real, that it's an evil, neoliberal concept the way that she puts it is, you know, there are there are so many forces, just to like totally mangle her argument here, sorry, Antonia, um, there, are, there are forces around us that kind of want to shape us into good neoliberal units. And the idea of procrastination uh, is tied to that. That's how I understand it anyway. But her contention is, look, procrastination is not a thing. You either want to do something or you don't. And the fact is, I just don't want to read Lynn Hedginian's My Life. I haven't been able to find a way in. I haven't enjoyed it when I've sat down to read it. I don't want to. And it's very important to be able to pay attention to the feeling of, I don't want to. Because we squash it. I squash it at least. I'm very, very good at squashing it and going, no, 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 no procrastination, do the thing. And then I wonder why I'm so resentful, why I get so exhausted sometimes and why I have a pile of books, um, a couple of different piles of books that just sit there and sit there and sit there and don't move is because I don't want to but I'm in denial about that. I hope something's going to change. But if I admit to you today that it's not going to change, then I could put that book away, put it into cold storage, as Tom would put it. Um, I got a couple of shoeboxes down there, which are currently overflowing with cold storage books that I have properly given up on, that I felt like, you know, it was fine to give up on. And... Um, read something I really want to read. Because Antonia's contention is like, it's instructive, right? Like it gives you really good information when you pay attention to what you want to do and what you don't want to do. 
you find out stuff about yourself that you didn't know because you're constantly doing things that you thought you should want to do. All this is true for me. I don't, I don't know how true this is for other people, but um, when she talks about this stuff, I'm like, yep, yep, that's my whole life <laughs> in some ways. So I'm putting this out a lot earlier than I than I thought I would because it's still about a month a month and a bit before I go overseas. But I'm just going to call it. I'm just calling it there. I appreciate you listening to this process. I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts on this at all. Any books that you've given up on, any books that are haunting you, feel feel very free to tell me about it. Okay, and this is where I got to. This is where I stopped reading on page 14. <laughs> this poem is called The Obvious Analogy is with Music. It was a mountain creek running over little pebbles of white quartz and mica. Let's say that every possibility waits. In Raga, time is added to measure, which expands. A deep thirst, faintly smelling of artichoke hearts and resembling the sleepiness of childhood. At every birthday party that year, the mother of the birthday child served ice cream and surprise cake, into which slices the favours were baked but nothing could interrupt those given days. I was sipping Shirley Temples, wearing my Mary Janes. My grandfather was as serious as any general before any battle, though he had been too young for the first war and too old for the second. He carried not a cane, but a walking stick and was silent on his walks, except when he passed a neighbor and then he tipped his hat and said, morning, if it were before noon or evening, if it were afternoon without pausing his walk, just as nowadays joggers will come to a stoplight and continue to jog in place so as not to break their stride. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to say about it. It's very impressive and it's very beautiful and it is very hard to want to keep reading 